morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. As I say, just about every Sunday. Uh, if you're new, my name is Jamie. Uh, I'm the guy who gets to to open up the scriptures most Sunday and expound God's word for God's people as we come into this this place. And this morning's no different. Um, for those of you who don't know, this morning marks the third Sunday of the Advent season. Uh, the word Advent uh, derived from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. It's a season meant to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus into the world, which probably comes as no surprise to you this time of year, though we as a church celebrate that all year long. The glad-hearted celebration of his first coming, yes and amen, and the humble trappings of a smelly stable. God who's not removed from the story that he's authoring, but rather one who humbly condescended to become a character in that very story, stepping into the pages of his own writing. Emmanuel, God with us. And with that, the hopeful anticipation of his second coming, the return of heaven's king to, to fully and finally fulfill our every longing. That piece doesn't get quite as much press this time of year, this idea of longing. We're supposed to be merry. We're not supposed to yearn for things. And, and yet, uh, we come together to explore both of those because we, as the church, live in the midst of the time in between. Considering both the redemptive gifts of Christmas past and Christmas future. And we're going to look at both of those this morning as we have the last couple of Sundays. And so, I invite you to, if you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 17. This morning will be in verses 22 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track on the screen behind me. Uh, everything will be up, up there as far as where we are in the scriptures as we work our way uh, through this morning's passage. Let me go ahead and pray for us so that we can jump in and, and get after it. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as a collective expression of your bride. Thank you for the gift of the Lord's Day, the many means of grace that are ours as we come into spaces like these. This is the best use of the time as we wake up every seven days to this thing we call the Lord's Day, the means of grace to sit under the preaching of your word, the means of grace in receiving the Lord's Supper, the means of grace in bringing our collective song before you and the many other things that happen in spaces like these. God, I pray that that would not be lost on us this morning. This time of year, the highs are incredibly high. The lows are incredibly low. You are a God big enough to meet your people in both, and I pray that you would this morning. God, I pray that you would awaken us to the wonder of Christmas yet again through a passage that doesn't get a lot of attention this time of year, perhaps strange at first glance to consider as a part of the Advent season. And yet I trust that as we open your word together, uh, that you will meet us there. Holy Spirit, would you awaken our hearts, our minds, to the, the beauty of God revealed this morning? Would you give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach, Lord, May this not be an exercise in futility as we sit with the scriptures in front of us for these next few minutes together. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and King. Amen. So these gatherings of the church, 
leading up to Christmas, they're going to continue to bring us face to face with a a number of longings that fill the hearts of those made in God's image. The the world in which we live, been saying this for a couple weeks now, is filled with echoes, reminders of the way God intended things to be. And hearing those echoes, we're, we're reminded that what we really long for is God himself, something more than the reflection. Regarding Advent, I've shared this quote the past couple of weeks, probably will continue to as we work our way through this series together. The Worship Source book, a collection of calls to worship, prayers of confession, etc. It says, the great proclamation, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John 1.14 That great proclamation assures us that God has entered into human history through the incarnation of the Son. The season of Advent, a season of waiting, is designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future. In Advent, we heighten our anticipation for the ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. When the wolf will lie down with the lamb, death will be swallowed up, and every tear will be wiped away. In this way, Advent highlights for us the larger story of God's redemptive plan. We began this series uh, considering our longing for justice in the world, a longing partly met in the first coming of, of Christ to be sure, the Lord our righteousness having come to inaugurate his good kingdom of truth and meekness and justice, a king who will someday return to do away with injustice and corruption forever, that God's people might know the joy of, of a new heaven and earth where righteousness and faithfulness and justice and peace shall reign forever. Last week, we shifted our attention from the longing for justice to the hunger for relationships, a hunger that finds its origins in the very being of a relational God of intratrinitarian love. A longing that's there because things are not as they should be, right? The birth of sin, bringing about the brokenness of relationships. Most importantly, man's relationship with God. Most of us know this. And with that, the fracturing of relationships between people. A longing, too, partly met in the first coming of Christ. God's plan to bring reconciliation and peace where there would otherwise be only hostility and brokenness. God's light of reconcilement shining upon lost sinners, redeeming us into this forever family through Jesus. And with that, the opportunity to know reconciliation on a human level as eternally bonded brothers and sisters in Christ who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We talked about that great gift of adoption last week. All those redemptive blessings and privileges, all the while coupled with a yearning for Jesus to usher in the consummation of his eternal and good kingdom, a land where broken relationships shall be no more. It's one of the many great gifts of Christmas future. This morning, we're going to shift our attention from the longing for justice, from the hunger for relationships, to the longing or quest for spirituality. We were created, you and I, for life in the spirit with an awareness that that life is more than the material world, that we were made for something uh, more than the temporal. If you were around for our series in Ecclesiastes, you'll recall Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time, God has. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That on the one hand, God has put eternity into our hearts and above the sunness into our hearts, 
which helps to explain not only the unsatisfied longings that we experience in a life lived under the sun in this broken world, but also the desire to to see beyond the times and the seasons to the bigger picture of how everything is pieced together. And yet on the other hand, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, God has decreed that we would not share in his divine attribute of omniscience, of all-knowingness, so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has not only orchestrated the putting of eternity into man's heart, this desire to understand the meaning of life, but he's also orchestrated that, that man be limited in his knowledge of the world, and God has ordained both. Derek Kidner Scholar and commentator, he says, we are like the desperately nearsighted inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from the beginning to the end. I gave this image when when we were in the book of Ecclesiastes together. It's like we, we... we sit on the, the backside of a tapestry, of a, of a canvas. We see the knots. We can't see the, the beautiful picture, the, the thing that God is weaving together in this great story of redemption that, that he's authoring. We, we live in a, an ordered world with its rhythms and seasons, and yet we're incapable of exhaustively figuring out the meaning of God's activity in the world. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We cannot see the full picture. We're, we're limited in our understanding. All the while longing for something more than the material, something more than the temporal. We were made for life with God. The experience of a life lived in daily life-transforming communion with God, with our maker. It helps to make sense of the Apostle Paul's experience in the city of Athens. If you pick up this morning's passage, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 22 Uh, We're told, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Athens was considered the birthplace of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy, of music, Ethics, theater, medicine. It was a cultural and and ideological epicenter where people would gather to engage in religious and philosophical discussion. Paul says, upon entering the city, I see your idols, statues, and temples devoted to and representing a pantheon of, of Greek gods. In fact, the word Areopagus, uh, it, it means hill of war, the hill of Ares. There was a spiritual war taking place. Paul saw it as he looked out on the landscape of this city. It was said in the city of Athens that that it was easier to find a God than a man, and that's no exaggeration. There were roughly 10,000 people living in the the city of Athens in Paul's day and roughly 30,000 statues of various gods. Along with all those temples and statues, most surely Paul would have observed the, the idolatry of the intellect, the idolatry of the arts, the idolatry of commerce and cultural achievement. Paul sees both graven idols and heart idols, and we're told that 
the, the overwhelming visible idolatry troubles Paul in his spirit, that he feels this righteous indignation on the one hand. God deserves this glory. And yet a brokenhearted compassion on the other hand as he sees a city hungry for something spiritual. Surely searching in all the wrong places, but searching and grasping for some kind of meaning nonetheless. Some like the Epicureans, which are spoken of in Acts chapter 17, embracing this deistic view of the world, believing that even if the gods existed, surely they were far removed from man, so that you were free to, to live for yourself. Not in a, an overindulgent kind of way with a level of restraint, but live for yourself nonetheless. Others like the Stoics believing that, that everything was divine and that destiny was essentially whatever hand you were dealt. An incredibly apathetic view of life, a fatalistic view of life. Both groups trying to deal with the unraveled nature of the world, just like we do in our day and age, yet in very different ways. The Epicureans through simple pleasure-seeking, the, the Stoics through apathy and indifference. Both searching. Maybe that's what you bring into this place this, this morning, on a quest for meaning, on a quest for purpose, believing that, that there must be something more because the truth is that there is something more. We can't seem to, to push the reality of God out completely no matter how hard we try. The prominent English writer Julian Barnes once said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That's haunting. We have this sense that there's, there's something more. There's something beyond the material, something beyond the, the temporal, and yet we construct our lives around those very things in the pursuit of meaning, in the pursuit of purpose. Paul essentially says, I see that you know that there's a God that you don't know. And I see your perceiving of God evidenced in, in ways that cannot bring you life. And you're filling the God-shaped void with, with all of your idols, it's the language of Romans 1, where Paul says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says, I, I see your objects of worship I see your altar to the unknown God in an effort to try to cover all your bases just in case you missed one. The true God can be made known. A God who's made himself known. Let me tell you about that God, the one you were made for, Paul says. And he goes on to say at the end of verse 23, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul proclaims to, to the crowd this God of creation and providence, a big deal in the, the, the midst of this particular audience, a pushback against the Epicurean belief that God is absent from his creation, as Paul declares that, no, it's God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's involved in his creation. A pushback against the Stoic belief that everything is divine, as Paul declares, no, God made the world and everything in it, articulating a creator-creature distinction. He's imminent, but he's also transcendent. 
Paul says, I, I see the, the Parthenon and all of its splendor looking out on the city, yet it cannot contain my God. He's not the needy one. We are. Our createdness and neediness revealing in itself the existence of God just as much as anything else. As we're dependent upon God to give us our next breath of air. Paul continues, verse 26. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their, of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In appealing to the crowd, Paul quotes a couple of Greek authors. First quote drawn from a hymn to Zeus, the second drawn from a poem by the, the Stoic poet uh, Eratus, showing them that, that even in their own cultural expressions, the cultural expressions of their very day, they can't seem to get away from the truth. And it continues to this day, the same way that many Hollywood uh, films capture the themes of brokenness and redemption. And we're caught up in this story that, that's so much bigger than us with inescapable themes and inescapable capital S script writer groping in the darkness, hungry for something more, searching for life and meaning and joy, grasping for satisfaction in this life and in this world. We all feel it, that we were made for something more. Story of Christmas. It's the story of God fulfilling that longing in the sending of his son into this broken world. A longing that can only be satisfied through Jesus. The story of Christmas is the story of God seeking the lost, pursuing the lost in Christ. We grasp and we can't seem to find it. And God reaches down and grabs hold of lost sinners. That's the story of Christmas. That we might know God. The one in whom and with whom we were created to experience that daily life-transforming communion. That every one of us is, is guilty of glory thieving, like the people of Athens, of directing our worship toward created things rather than the creator who alone is worthy of our worship. That God would have been perfectly just to, to look upon us with only righteous indignation, destining us for eternal wrath. And yet... He was filled with brokenhearted compassion, just like the Apostle Paul, compelled to enter into the marketplace of human history. Christ Jesus, he stepped into the slums of our broken, fallen world, revealing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to construct our lives around the material and the temporal in the pursuit of meaning and purpose. We can not only know the God who's made himself known, but we can know the joy of daily life-transforming communion with this self-revealing God in Christ, freed from groping, free from grasping, free from clawing. It's one of the greatest gifts of Christmas past. I would ask this morning, do you know this self-revealing God? Having stooped into the slums of a world filled with idolaters, grasping for, for meaning in the darkness, that the longing for eternity that's been put into our hearts might be fulfilled. Paul goes on in closing out this morning's passage. 
He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, Paul says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul issues a a command to repent, to turn from empty wells to the fount of everlasting joy, to stop grasping it at lesser things, in the pursuit of meaning, in the pursuit of purpose, in the pursuit of joy, to turn to the the one true God who's made himself known in the coming of Jesus. The story of Christmas is the story of a Savior who would bear the sins of our idolatry and glory thieving in his body on the tree. If you're not a Christian, again, we, we can't seem to push the reality of God out completely no matter how hard we try. We can keep on grasping for for meaning in the things of this world. We can keep on grasping for purpose in the things of this world. And we'll never quite grab hold of that which we were made for. Like the author of Ecclesiastes, we'll always come up just a little bit short. You were made for God. Know that, that God is pleased to pardon the iniquity of rebellious sinners, counting them righteous in his sight. It's the good news of the gospel, not on the basis of human merit or moral fiber. God's rescue mission, it's not about impressing some divine elf on the shelf. No, the truth of Christmas is that Jesus was born to die. The hope of, of ruined sinful humanity The story of a cradle leading to a cross that lost sinners might be reconciled to God by grace, saved. No matter how many things you put your hope in other than God in the search for meaning in this world. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus for salvation. To know the one in whom and with whom we were created to experience daily life transforming communion and relationship with our maker and redeemer. And if you are a Christian, and that's most of the room, again, we we have this sense that there's something more, something beyond the material, something greater than the the temporal. And yet we, we too construct our lives around those very things in the pursuit of meaning, in the pursuit of purpose. Confessionally, we know that they can't fulfill or satisfy, but functionally, our hearts fail to grab hold of that which we confessionally proclaim to believe. We're no different in that regard, we Christians. We oftentimes push God to the periphery of our own lives, constructing our lives around around the echoes of a voice made for so much more, yet settling for less than what we were made for. And this is where the, the second advent comes in. Because until Christ returns, and this should create a longing in each and every one of us, until Christ returns, there will always be the temptation to grasp, to cling to the echoes instead of the voice. And so we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Come before Christmas this year, fully and finally ushering in your eternal kingdom, a world in which we shall grasp at lesser things no more. And as we yearn, 
as we wait, God calls us to repent, coming back to those last verses of this morning's passage, to repent of constructing our lives around the material, around the temporal, to stop chasing meaning and purpose in those things, to turn yet again to Christ, to repent of pushing God to that periphery of our lives and constructing our lives around those echoes of of a voice, to look to the great gift of Christmas past, Emmanuel, God with us, the gift of God revealed, the gift of God made known so that we don't have to just reach and claw and hope that we get a hold of it. No, he stepped in. This is a God who invites us into the experience of daily life-transforming relationship with him to turn from the echoes of idols to the voice of God himself. We all feel it, that we were made for something more. Eternity placed in our hearts. The story of Christmas is the story of God fulfilling that longing and the sending of his son into this broken world God invites us this morning to embrace that gift, life with God. That that something more that we were made for as we look to him for true meaning, for true purpose, for true joy.